You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida. Come build with us on Christ, our firm foundation. To learn more, visit fbcfreeport.life. guests here today, and I'm looking forward to getting to meet uh, our guest. And if you're a, a long time or a, a former member and you've made your way back home for homecoming, we want to say thank you. And we're just thrilled that you've joined us today. If you are new today, let me catch you up to speed uh, ever so briefly. We're in a, a, a series called A Daring Response to Dark Days. All right, and it's a very fitting series for the, the season of life and a, and a history in which we find ourselves because we are in dark days. And so there's so much we can learn from the book of Nehemiah. In fact, a little bit of the backstory on this, this book and this period of time, God's people, uh, the Israelites, are coming back from a period of exile, some 70 years. And they went there because God punished them for their sin. You'll see a number of God's prophets prophesying to God's people that because they have not listened to the Lord and they've turned their back on the Lord, they've disobeyed God's law, He is sending and He sent... uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and they laid waste to Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The temple and the city was mowed down and the people carried into exile into Babylon. So now we are on the back end of this story and God keeps His promise to His people. See, God... Um, does, not, does not let judgment be the last word for his people. He keeps his promise and he's bringing them back. But there's a lot of work to be done. All right. And, and there's a lot of threats and dangers which they have to navigate. And so God sends Nehemiah. He sent Ezra before, Zerubbabel before, and now he sends Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king in the Persian Empire. And God puts this burden on Nehemiah's heart to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So that brings us up to speed. And today, today I want to speak on, on this occasion of homecoming. I want to talk with us about neutralizing the threat within. All right, neutralizing the threat within. So up until this point in the story, Nehemiah and God's people have been completely focused on the threats outside of them. They're surrounded by enemies. Surrounded. And they have no walls, no protection, and they are constantly attacked, constantly exploited, constantly at risk. And so they've been building this wall. We saw last week they've got the walls built up to halfway, some 20 or so feet tall, some two miles of wall, making great progress. A great victory was won last week, and now chapter 5 throws a curveball. Something 
on the inside arises. And you know, that's the truth today that we're going to consider. Some of the most destructive and dangerous threats that Christians and churches face today come from within. And so we need to learn how to neutralize the threats within. In fact, let me share a quote with you from an old-timey commentator named J. Vernon McGee. He's one of those straight shooters, all right? He cuts it right down the middle. He tells it like it is, and he steps on our toes this morning because he says some of the brethren, talking about the church, deal with wrongs in the church by sweeping them under the rug. Hello. With the excuse that they want to maintain a Christian attitude by being sweet and nice. Now in the Baptist world, we call that the 11th commandment. All right. Thou shalt not call anyone out for anything whatsoever. All right. Now, J. Vernon McGee says, that's not acting like a Christian. That's acting like a coward. All right. Now, we don't want to be cowards. And in fact, the whole point of this series is that if we're, if we're going to make a daring response, which the world needs in these dark days, then it has to begin in-house. We need a daring, courageous response to those little festering threats that could come and swell up and subvert the entire mission here at First Baptist Freeport. So I want to tell you this morning, I didn't plan chapter 5 for this occasion. I'm just following my plan. But I think this is timely and fitting for our 147th anniversary. And if we want to have another 150 years together, and I know we do, Lord willing, then we've got to take this chapter serious. So let's pray together and we'll give consideration. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege and opportunity in, in, our, uh, in our week to carve out space to fellowship together, to see smiles, to hug necks. Thank you for this time today that is so sacred and special to sing and worship you. <clears throat> and we thank you that in the midst of all of this, we get to open your word, your ancient, eternal, perfect word, and we get to bring our lives in alignment with your truth. We get to consider what you would say to us today to help us live the Christian life together to your glory. Help us today, Lord. Speak to us. Have your perfect way in us. In your name we pray. Amen. As we get into this chapter in the first five verses, and we're going to read these together, we see that there's a call to evaluate concerns. As God's people are on mission together and we're living life together, in community together, we have a need to evaluate concerns as they arise. So let's notice in in the first five verses, beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses just so we can get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax 
on our fields and our vineyards. Now our fields, or sorry, now our flesh is as their flesh, and our children is as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what's going on here? There is a threat within. You see that? In verse 1 it says there arose a great outcry. Now, you can imagine some uh, 97 plus thousand people, if you, if you follow kind of the timeline here, have come back and there's a problem and so a great outcry. We're talking thousands of people, potentially, are raising a ruckus. Why? It's against their own Jewish brothers. So the threat is within. So Nehemiah begins to evaluate and assess the threat, the concern that's been raised. We see three times it says there were those who said. There were those who said. So the report is coming in. Nehemiah is evaluating. He's listening. The people are relaying the problem. Here's the problem. They're hungry. All right. Now, some of y'all can relate this morning. Not really. I mean, they're like really hungry. They're, they're facing potential starvation here. This is a, a serious situation. There has been a disruption of field work in this agrarian society because of famine and because of this building project which has taken them from their fields. And so they're asking the question, how are we going to eat? How are we going to get grain when we're here building the wall in the midst of a famine? Now, these are hard times. And on top of that, they're getting desperate, and so some of them are putting their, their fields, their, their ancestral properties, their, their productive, pro their means of, of feeding themselves, so they're having to put them up as collateral, and they're losing everything, which is forcing their hand in desperation. These people, faced with starvation, are selling their sons and daughters into slavery. This is a serious threat. Um, you have to evaluate the concerns when they come in. Is it a legitimate concern or is it contrived? Is it a petty concern or is it serious? That's the job of the leaders and that's the job of the church family. And we know that some complaints are because we like to complain. <laughs> All right, And there's a res appropriate response to every situation, but it has to be evaluated. This is a serious threat here, undeniably. In fact, in verse 5, those complaining say, our flesh is as theirs. The, the, the brothers who are exploiting us, we're the same flesh and blood. We're Jews. We have the same bloodline. We're the same people. And then they say, our children are as their children. In other words... They're just utterly baffled that here they are, part of the same family, the same people in covenant relationship. you understand that? That's how God's family works. See, God commits Himself to us. All right? Uh, we, need, uh, we need to proclaim this in our generation because our generation knows nothing about commitment. 
We walk out at the slightest provocation. We quit when it gets hard. God keeps His promises. He has made a covenant with His people and He teaches us to love one another with that same kind of committed uh, stick-to-itiveness. Alright? We hang in there when it gets hard. But here they are treating one another as if they're not family. This really highlights the destructiveness of sin. And that is the name of the problem facing God's people. It's sin. In the the second part of verse 5, they say, we're helpless in this situation because there are other men, Israelites, our Jewish brothers, they have taken our fields. We're in a situation we can do nothing about it because they have taken our fields. And so what happened here is that God's people, the, the elite, those who, who had the means, because of sinfulness in their heart, they are exploiting the circumstance. You know how that goes, right? The, 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 the situation here, they're charging usury or interest to their own people. And when they can't pay up, they're confiscating their fields, which is forcing slavery. We would expect this from the outside world, would we not? Uh, We just survived barely uh, the election season last year. And you know how it goes. Um, Of course, the verdict's still out on whether we've survived it. (laughs) But the political axiom is, And we've heard it out of people's own mouths in politics. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And we saw that. We saw that. We saw the death of George Floyd, a tragic occurrence, get exploited to divide our nation racially. And we saw a pandemic get exploited to shut down and just totally send us into a panic. Never let a good crisis go to waste. We expect that from the outside world. In fact, that's the very reason that Nehemiah is building the wall. It's to keep the enemies who want to undermine and destroy God's people to keep them out. Now, there's doors there. God is inviting the nations in to salvation, but you have to come through the gate, not over the wall. And Jesus is the gate. You come through Him, you can be saved by faith. The problem comes when the church and when Christians act like the world. This is the problem we're dealing with today. Alright? The problem facing us in chapter 5 is not the world, but the worldly attitude, the worldly way of dealing, worldly actions, worldly behaviors. That's why Romans 12.1 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. God's people are held to a higher standard. Amen? But the truth is, we're sinners. Um, You read the New Testament, Acts 6. What do you see? You see some of the widows were being mistreated. Alright? Some were being treated one way, others treated another. The sin of partiality. James 5.4 James, the brother of Jesus, he rips... The greedy in the church because he says the wages 
that you have withheld from your employees is crying out against you. So in, in the New Testament, in the church, we see this. 1 Corinthians 6, 8. Paul gets on the case of some in the church. He says, because you're cheating even your own brothers. In Galatians 5, 15, Paul says, if you keep on biting and devouring one another, you will be consumed. And so the threat within is a serious threat. And we have to take it serious as we evaluate concerns. Why is this? Why do we struggle with worldliness at times? Well, it's because we have a sin nature. I do and you do. I, I heard uh, this week, there's a country music song. And you've probably heard it, maybe. It says, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. Now, that's a guy at the bar bragging to his buddies about how good he was in the old days, how he could hold his own in a brawl, how he could hit a home run. And, and there's a little bit of that in all of us. But I heard that inverted this week. Someone said, I'm not as bad as I once was but I'm as bad once as I ever was. Now that tells the truth on Christians. The good news by the grace of God is when God comes into our life, He does change us. And we can say by the grace of God, looking back, I'm not as bad as I once was. I'm a work in progress, but God has really done wonderful things in me. You should have, you should have seen me back then. Amen? Anyone can testify to that? Or I can say I, I'm, I'm still in progress. But I'm not as bad as I once was. You should have known me. You <laughs> should have known me at 30. You wouldn't have wanted me at 30. <laughs> but I'm as bad once as I ever was. And that speaks to what Romans 7 talks about, that remaining sin. Christians and churches have that deadly potential to commit appalling, destructive sins. And that's the truth. And that's the reason why we must remain on guard against the threat within. Nehemiah finds himself here in this historic building project that they've all come together for. It is threatened and brought to the brink of failure at this point because if he doesn't act fast, there's going to be a mutiny on his hands. His work crew is going home. And they're going to wash their hands of their... Um, cooperative spirit because they're sick and tired of being trampled on by their own people. So something has to happen here. I remember when I was a pastor in an international church in Taiwan. It was a wonderful experience. We had people from dozens of different countries coming together. Um, and we had fellowship meals and you wouldn't believe the food on the table. You, you, you didn't even know what half of it was. And it was just a rich experience, culturally speaking, and, and just the people of God from every tribe and, and nation. Uh, when God gets a hold of people, uh, the, He does a beautiful thing. And I, and I have some of the best friends I've ever made from different backgrounds, different countries, and we had wonderful fellowship. After I moved back here, I, I went a year later and I visited them. We had a, a group of Filipina ladies who were so sweet. They were migrant workers. And they would work long weeks, some of them 80 hours a week. Sunday was their only day off. And we would have the best fellowship after. They'd bring their meals and they'd have free reign of the kitchen. 
They didn't have their own place to live. Uh, they lived with their employers. And so Sunday, we gave the church to the Filipino ladies. That was their home away from home. And they were just, you, you just never saw such happiness. Just uh, people truly at rest, not a care in the world. They're laughing and carrying on. They've got couches. They're taking naps. And they're cooking and having Bible study and praying and crying with each other. It was just a beautiful thing. I came back a year later. I was so looking forward to Sunday after the service with the Filipino ladies. And afterwards, I noticed they weren't in the kitchen cooking. Where are the Filipino ladies? And I didn't hear laughter. Where are the Filipino ladies? Well, I went and hunted them down. They were scattered across the church, cleaning the church on their only day off, cleaning the church. And I said, what is going on here? And they told me with tears in their eyes that they had been given the job of volunteering to clean the church every Sunday on their one day off. Let me tell you something. I got really mad about that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I was ready to skin the new pastor alive. I'm not going to lie to you. While the well-to-do living their comfortable lives would show up on Sunday and take and take and go out and eat at their fancy restaurants, they were taking advantage of one group in the church. And these ladies had tears in their eyes when they came and told me that. You know what? If I, I, I talked to that pastor, and, and you know what? He just didn't realize it. And he changed that next week. That, that situation got, it got rectified. But if it hadn't, they would have lost a group of their people. They would have lost some of their church family. This is why we have to deal with and evaluate concerns. Amen? What do you do, though, after you've evaluated? The second thing today is we have to expel sin. All right? It's not enough to just notice there's a problem. We have to deal with it. We pick up in verse 6 here, verses 6 through 13, and here's what we read about Nehemiah's response. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. All right? I took counsel with myself, and then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Those in charge, those with the power, those with the say, I brought charges. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to other nations. But you are doing the opposite. You're selling your brothers even that they're sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, verse 10, I and our brothers and my servants are lending our people money and grain, those who are hungry. Now let us abandon this exacting of interest, this charging interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money and grain and wine and all that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they promised. Verse 13. And then I shook the fold of my garment and I said to them, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised God, and everyone did as they promised. Nehemiah got angry. And rightly so. You, you know when we see injustice, when we see mistreatment, when we see people violating God's law, transgressing against one another, there is a place for righteous indignation. Jesus modeled that. All right, he drove out the, 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 and cleansed the temple. You remember that? Paul confronted Peter. Remember that? Got right in his face. He wasn't a coward, he confronted sin. But we're to do that without sinning. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. And so Nehemiah, he takes counsel with himself. What does that mean? It means he went and got alone with the Lord and he cooled off. You see, when you get angry at sin and you have to confront sin, you want to do it not ruled by your emotions. Not all hot and bothered. But he took counsel from the Lord. You want not your emotions, but God's truth reigning you in and guiding you as we confront things that can really upset us. Because we have our flesh that gets involved, we have our pride, our wounded ego, um, all the baggage. Every You know, when you're upset with someone, isn't it funny? Everything that everyone's ever done to you before can come into play, right? I mean, we have a hard time differentiating when we're trying to work through things. And so he took counsel on himself. And then in verse 7, it says he confronted. Verse 7, he brought charges. Right, he's a leader. God has delegated to leaders a real, albeit limited, authority. And we don't like that sometimes. We, we, have, we have imbibed the values of an egalitarian culture, which really um, hates hierarchy. But you know the word hierarchy means sacred order? You, you realize that, right? Can you imagine a world without hierarchy? It, it, well, just turn on CNN. I, I, you'll see their, their sense of order is fiery but mostly peaceful. All right? that's, what, that's what the world looks like without order. It's fiery but mostly peaceful. Right, in other words, it's burning down. God has given leaders authority and that is a delegated authority god has ultimate authority but he gives it to pastors he gives it to leaders gives it to husbands gives it to parents and the purpose of wielding authority is for protecting and building up god's people it's for our good yes it can get abused but you don't want to live in a world where there is no one in charge, where there is no one who will answer to God for taking care of you. You don't want to live in that world. And I guarantee you, no one wants to live in a chapter 5 of Nehemiah when the vulnerable are being exploited. 
So, Nehemiah comes accountable to God and he confronts this mistreatment. You see that? That's the world we want to live in. And he calls an assembly. All right? They have some business to handle. He invites everyone with their grievance, everyone who's being taken advantage of, everyone who needs to plead their case. He invites them to come, and they have an assembly. They have the Jewish brothers there who are exploiting, who need to be held accountable. They're all here. You know we have that process in church. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother or sister sins against you, you are to go and tell them their fault. Say, look, this is what's going on. This is the issue I'd like to talk with you about. It says, just between the two of you. Now, obviously, if it's a dangerous situation, you don't go alone. But if it's sister to sister, brother to brother, or something of that nature, just the two of you, if they listen to you, you get through to them. It says you have won them over. That's a victory. Amen? That's, that's unity restored. That's a healthy church. But if they will not listen, Jesus says in Matthew, take one or two others with you. So go grab another brother or sister as a mediator, as a witness, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three. Alright, if someone's trying to weasel out of taking ownership for a wrong, you take witnesses. This is the process. And then it says, if they still refuse to cooperate and own and make right, then you tell it to the church. And that brings us to Nehemiah 5. There's an assembly here to work through this process. You see, this is a gift from God. Order and process and checks and balances and accountability and discipline. This is how the church is set apart from the world. We have a way to work through things to maintain fellowship and unity. And so Nehemiah calls them on the carpet, says stop exacting this interest. How do we navigate these kinds of concerns when they arise in a church? How, how do we know what is right or wrong? How, how do we parse these questions? And the answer is God's Word and God's law. That's what we have. That is the standard by which we evaluate concerns. We look at God's holy law. Amen? Nehemiah says, stop exacting interest. Well, how do we know that's wrong? God's law. Deuteronomy 23.19 says, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest. Alright? Now, there were other laws for other business dealings. Interest was permitted to be charged in some circumstances, but you couldn't charge your own brother interest, whether on money or food or anything. That was in God's law. That's how they knew it was wrong. Stop doing it. How do we know it was wrong to sell your own brother into slavery? Because Leviticus 25, verse 39, God's law says if your brother becomes poor next to you and sells himself to you, in other words, he says, I'm going to be your servant, it says you shall not make him as your slave. God's law 
clearly delineates what is right and what is wrong. That's what we have as our standard, God's law. And then Nehemiah says, what you're doing is not good. The way we know what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong is God's law. The golden rule, you remember um, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In Galatians 5, 15, 14, it says the entire law can be summed up in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? That's what all these laws get at. God's law is there to show us and help us love one another as ourselves. Treat one another as we want to be treated. Amen? That's how you get to 150 years by the grace of God. You learn to love one another. Not perfectly, but when situations arise, you make them right. And they did make things right. And for time's sake, um, we won't go into that except to say this. Nehemiah held them accountable. All right? He says, first of all, don't you fear God? He says, the, 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 the main motivator for us treating one another right is, is a proper fear of God. God is watching you. He sees how you treat one another. You're, you and I are going to answer to God one day. Amen? And so a proper fear and reverence of God uh, motivates us to love one another. And then secondly, accountability. He has the priest come, and he, he has them in the sight of the priest say, yeah, pastor, I'm going to do what they said. I'm going to do it. <laughs> All right. And, and by the way, if they don't, they're going to follow up with them. And then Nehemiah said, may the Lord shake you out like I'm shaking my garment. I, I bet this was quite a scene. I bet there's a little dust flying. Nehemiah has been working on those walls. I bet he was dirty. All right. And I bet when he shook that out in the assembly, you could see some dust. And he says, may you be like that if you don't do what you said. May God shake you right out of our midst. And may you be shaken right out of your homes, out of your wealth. May you be empty and bankrupt like the people whom you've been trampling on. Alright, so he invoked a curse on them if they didn't keep their word. And that was tied to the fear of the Lord. Because he said, may the Lord do unto you what you've done to them if you don't make it right. You know what everyone said? They said, Amen. They said, Amen. And let's eat. That's what they said. They praised the Lord. You see, God's people are happy and harmonious when we love one another, when we make things right, and when we go the extra mile to stick together. That promotes peace. Amen? In closing... Not only do we need to evaluate concerns, not only do we need to expel sin, but we need to exemplify godliness. And that's what Nehemiah does for us. And we'll close with these verses. Verses 13 through 19. Nehemiah says, From the time I was appointed as our governor until the in the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years as governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Verse 15, 
the former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people. They took their daily rations of 40 shekels of silver as a tax. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of fear of the Lord God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. I acquired no land. My servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there was my table set for 150 men, Jews, and servants, plus those who came from other nations. What was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six sheep or birds. And every 10 days, now close your, close your ears if you're Baptist here, every 10 days, uh, wine in abundance. And yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance for the governors because the service was too heavy for the people. And then Nehemiah closes out his journal entry, which is just between him and the Lord. He says, remember me, O God, for all the good I've done for your people. This is an example of godliness. Nehemiah, for 12 years he served as governor. And he was such a refreshing contrast to the governors before him who took the, the extravagant allowance for food and it burdened the people. Uh, they, they were living large as a tax on the people. And it says that even their servants, their whole administration just trampled on God's people. But Nehemiah refused a salary. He refused a food allowance. He didn't have to. He did. Why? Because he was in a hard situation. He was in dark days that called for a daring, extraordinary response. Verse 15, he tells us why. It's because he feared God. He saw God. He saw God's people. He understood God loves His people so much and it says the burden was so heavy on them. He says, I want to honor the Lord and I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to sacrifice myself because I love God's people, because I love God. So instead of taking and consuming like the men before him, it says Nehemiah persevered in the work. Instead of consuming, he produced. He labored hard and he rallied his team. It says his servants, they showed up for work. They were there to serve God's people. This is an example of godliness. Amen? It says he acquired no land. You know it's not wrong to acquire land, don't you? It's not wrong to work hard. In fact, it's a sin to be lazy and to not leave an inheritance to your, to your children. Read Proverbs. All right? Don't misunderstand what Nehemiah is saying here. He's not saying it's sinful to have done well in life and to accumulated a good inheritance. But what he's saying is he didn't use his political advantage for personal gain. All right? And we see that, right? We see politicians come in to office and after 5, 10, 20, 30 years, they're multi-millionaires because of all the back room deals they've made. We see that all the time. But Nehemiah didn't do that. In fact, he was incredibly generous. On his own dime, every day for 12 years, he killed an ox and six sheep or birds. You do the math. In 12 years, Nehemiah, out of his own pocket, fed 150 plus people every day. That's 
4,000 plus ox and 26,000 plus sheep and birds from his own bank account. He was generous. Why? Because he had an army to feed. They were heavy and they were working hard and he did everything in his might to keep them going. That was an example of godliness. And he did it because he was looking forward to a heavenly reward. Amen? He said, remember me, O God. That's why we live differently than the world. Because we have a God who sees us and He rewards those who live for Him. So We're going to close with this today. I want to close with this little story. In 1871 which was just three years before this church was founded in 1874. And 1871 was the great Chicago fire. You remember that in history? Some three plus square miles just went up in flames because everything was made of wood back then with some exceptions of brick. Some 300 people perished in the fire. 100,000 people left homeless. Chicago was burnt to the ground some three plus miles. Little, little history, little side story here. Someone brought some of those bricks from that fire in Chicago down to Florida. Someone dug some bricks out of that fire in Chicago in 1871. They brought them down to Freeport. You know how I know that? Because somehow... Mr. Lloyd got them and built his fireplace and his hearth in his room. It's a beautiful hearth made out of the bricks salvaged from that fire. But D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was preaching when the fire alarms went off for that fire. His church was right in the middle of that three mile radius. In fact, on that Sunday, or whenever it was, he didn't give an altar call. He didn't give an invitation to respond to the message because everyone was scrambling for their lives. So he told everyone, come back next week. He said, I give you a week to think about this message. You do business with God, you come back and respond to God. You know, he lived the rest of his days regretting that. He was sick in his soul as he considered that many who listened to him preach, would never return. They would perish in that fire. And he always regretted. He never gave those people, called them to respond to God. So in honor of history today, in honor of D.L. Moody's preaching in that great fire, I want to invite you this morning to respond to God today. Not later this week, but today. To respond to this message. And here's the first invitation. The greatest threat you and I will ever face is not out there. It's in here. You understand that? It's in here. You and I have a sinful nature that will destroy us and separate us from God for eternity. I'm inviting you today to deal with that great threat. The only way you can deal with that is by asking the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for you, went in the grave and came back a dead, from the dead. He's the only person in human history to do that. And he did that for our sin. 
If you put your faith in Him today and ask Him, He will save you from your sin. He will give you a new heart. He will wipe your, clay, your slate clean so that when you stand before God one day, you'll say, I know I'm forgiven. Not because I'm good, but because He was good in my place. You can have the assurance of heaven because He was good on your behalf. He did what you couldn't do. That's the first invitation. Deal with that threat. And secondly, the invitation is this. First Baptist Freeport is a lot like Chicago in 1871. We've weathered some storms. We've been through some fires. And we're small, but we're rebuilding. We may feel like some smoky old bricks right now. But by God's grace, He can take the bricks out of the fire and He can rebuild. That's the invitation is to come and build with us upon Christ, our firm foundation. Thank you for listening. Are you ready to take God at His word? We invite you right now to respond by faith and obedience. If you'd like to speak further about spiritual matters or to learn more about First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida, contact us today at fbcfreeport.life.